0: to the Hale Report. My name is Lyric Hughes-Hale, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of EconView and your host today, Friday, April 22, 2022. EconView, based in Chicago, is a home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical global economic issues. If you'd like to subscribe to our monthly newsletter, as well as listen to our podcasts, please visit our website, and if you can, support us on Substack. My guest today for our 28th episode of The Hale Report is Marsha Vandenberg. I've known Marsha since she was CEO of the Pacific Pension and Investment Institute, a thought leadership organization for senior global institutional investors. During her tenure, she significantly expanded the organization's reach, and the conferences she ran were legendary, a place where emerging issues for investors were first brought to the forefront. Since then, She's held a variety of advisory positions with a special focus on India and reflecting her long-term roots in the San Francisco area, data science. She is also a leading voice in the debate about sustainability. Her directorships include the RAND Corporation, the Asia Foundation, the Japan Society, and Tata Capital. She also served as a fellow at Stanford University Distinguished Careers Institute, She's an original EconView expert, one of the first people I asked to join, in fact. She truly has a global macro outlook on the world and the people who run it. She heads her own consultancy, MJ Global Insights. Welcome, Marsha, to the Hale Report. I'm so glad we're able to talk together today. Thank you. So as our regular listeners know, I always ask my guests how they came to do what they do so well. I know Marsha got her PhD in German studies at Vanderbilt, and before leading PPI, she was a journalist at publications such as the Tennessean and the San Francisco Chronicle. And she continues to write for major publications. But Marsha, I don't really know what originally inspired your international career. Um, uh, Can you share that with us? What was your journey to get where you are today?
1: Well, Lyric, let me say, first of all, it was a pleasure. And we actually go back further than my PPI days. We go back to when I was on the board of the University of San Francisco Center for the Pacific Rim. And I invited you and David, your late husband, to be my guests in a one-on-one conversation about what was happening around the uh, Pacific Rim. And the two of you were just delightful as my guests. So we go back a, a few more years, and that was probably 1998,
0: 1999. Wow. <laughs> we we shouldn't admit to these things, Marcia.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe not.
0: But that's, now that, I, that you say that, I remember that. That's right.
1: Well, thank you for that question. It's um, a thoughtful question, and it uh, provokes a thoughtful answer, I hope. Uh, it actually goes back to my growing up days. And um, I was born in Iowa, but I claim South Dakota as my uh, growing up state. And South Dakota, as your listeners will know, many of them, is a rather conservative uh, community, set of communities. And, uh, And I don't mean necessarily politically, although it is politically conservative, but conservative in their outlook on life and very inward looking. And from a very early age, there was something that inside of me that wanted to go out beyond south dakota out beyond my midwestern dutch roots and i'm all dutch my grandparents were all dutch immigrants and uh so that led me to the study of german in high school first latin then german i happened to be a very good student and the schools were good actually in watertown south dakota and then i from there i went to the university of iowa and at the university of iowa i studied german and ended up going to Germany for part of my education. And it was that travel abroad that first brought me in touch with foreign affairs, if you will, foreign affairs and foreign policy and foreign ways of doing things. I saw my first opera. I was speaking a foreign language. I was in another culture. uh, I traveled um, throughout parts of Europe and I was multiple times back to Europe. But that initiation through the study of German to um, the study of what makes our countries work together or not work together under the umbrella of foreign relations is how I really, um, is what motivates me and has motivated me throughout my journalism career and currently through the and my time at PPI and my, um, uh, my current uh, consulting work and my current work with funds and um, organizations on sustainability and corporate governance. So it's a thread that runs through That has its roots in um, South Dakota. Well, I wouldn't trade growing up in South Dakota because it was, in terms of values, it was a very good place to grow up. I knew I wanted to leave because I knew the world was much broader and much bigger and much more interesting um, than those roots would have led me to uh, experience otherwise. So,
0: Well, foreign exchange programs are so critical. And it's, you know, one thing that we're losing now during COVID is those Mm -hmm. opportunities have been radically diminished. And, you know, people who are China scholars can't go to China and we're not sending our kids to Europe anymore the way we were for a year abroad. So Mm -hmm. I think we Mm -hmm. were quite lucky. I was an exchange student during high school to Japan, and I think we were so Ah. lucky to uh-huh. have those experiences, and oh, I only I'm, hope that we do more of it, right?
1: Right. I'm a big believer because I think they also give way to adults doing people-to-people exchanges, which is a critical, that track three, track four, however many tracks down, down the list you want to go, is very important for our countries and our government's ability to get along and, and uh, work with one another. So I couldn't agree with you more.
0: Well, before we go to your global views, because you have an amazing view of the entire world, but I'd like to ask you, um just from a journalistic standpoint, um, what you think is going on um, in the San Francisco area in particular. There's uh, the darlings, the media tech darlings are no longer the darlings of the stock market at least, and they're under definitely under fire from various mm-hmm. quarters. What's going on um, in Silicon Valley right now?
1: Well, it was interesting. Um, I actually live in the city, and Silicon Valley is uh, about an hour's drive south, uh, but I'm very familiar with the Valley and, of course, Stanford, where I spent recently two years as a Distinguished Careers Fellow. Um, uh, President Obama was on campus at Stanford yesterday talking to a group of students, faculty, and other people about the uh, social media and the technology companies that support social media saying regulation is really coming down the pike, but it's also necessary in terms of guaranteeing more transparency, getting it more transparency. And I think he's right. And I think these tech companies uh, like it or not, that's really what is happening. And uh, though many of them are, are really, uh um, Uh, spending a lot of money on lobbying to try to shape whatever regulation does come forward uh, in ways that will be more favorable to their interests. I just think it's, um, uh, you know, it's a part of our life and our world. Technology, social media is now a part of our life and our world that it has to come into some Uh, it's got to fit some structures. And I think that emphasis on transparency that the president uh, emphasized is right on the money. I think not trying to constrain their innovation in any way, not trying to constrain their business models in any way, but trying to get them to come forward uh, with more clarity, more transparency about how they do what they do and how they use our data that they collect in the process. I think that's a very important issue that cuts right to the heart of many of us and many of our interests in privacy. And then in the city, you asked about where I live. And I would mention, I think San Francisco is in an interesting place politically. It's trying to grapple with its liberal tendencies. I mean, very progressive liberal tendencies and what that has meant in terms of the running of government and uh, now the instance of, of crime and the instance of homelessness and um uh, street cleaning and just things that are important to the running of municipal governments. And we're about to have a referendum on the DA in San Francisco, who is a very, very liberal, uh, DA. And someone quoted to me yesterday, polls that show better than 50% that he will be recalled. That's the, that's the issue on the agenda on the, Mm -hmm. on the ballot. And, um, so if that person is correct and those polls are correct, that we should see that change up. But it's what's happening, I think, not just in San Francisco, but San Francisco. It's interesting because it's such a liberal island in much for, for much of America, and that um, kind of switch up as people worry about pocketbook issues, about safety issues, security issues. Um, I think it's you know a different calculus is figuring in the political mindset of people
0: well it's not that different in chicago you know either in yes. terms of those same issues yes. that we're facing here and the same dissatisfaction i think with the current mm-hmm. you know city government in particular we'll see how that plays out we don't have a recall mechanism oh, unfortunately uh-huh. <laughs> so there's <laughs> yeah, no way to recall our mayor <laughs> but i wonder how that would go i think san francisco is just under the microscope because it's the richest place on the on the planet.
1: Indeed, and
0: mm-hmm. next door to this, um, you know, the manifestations of extreme poverty—almost a third world kind of vision—that we see.
1: I will say, um, you know, I do so much on Stanford campus, and happen to be co-chair of the DCI, the Distinguished Careers Institute Global Advisory Council, and um, so I'm uh, still involved with the program, and then other other. Uh, aspects of the Stanford campus, that, that that the campus emphasizes what's really good about the valley, and that is the innovation that keeps coming forward, and that's so important to our economic productivity and uh, uh, just across the board, that there, there are good things. There are things that need to be corrected, like this um, emphasis on transparency that President Obama was talking about yesterday, but also in the area of diversity. I mean, Um, Silicon Valley gets very low marks for how it has treated women and how it has promoted women. Um, And uh, particularly in the venture capital area, Sand Hill Road, where the VCs, so many of the names that we all recognize are located. You'll go into a boardroom and you'll see 25 people around the table, maybe 23 men, one woman and one person of color and the 23 men are all educated at stanford, harvard, yale, horton and um and the women are too but you know that just the imbalance in terms of men versus women particularly diversity is is as uh, well is is well known and it's a black mark that hopefully they're going to be able to correct
0: yeah i was just thinking about what you said about uh, transparency you know mm-hmm. too in all of this but you know, in the traditional media, um, content was created by uh, people who were, who were members of that group and they were paid to do that, right? Mm-hmm. In social media, we contribute all of this uh, content and yet we're not paid for what we contribute. Um, the advertising dollars and so forth revert to the company. So mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of it's a, a new business model. But, um, hmm. I noticed that you wrote about the value of the of a digital life um, in something that you did, and I was so intrigued by that. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: This is a very interesting little company. Um, it's not it's very much in its early stages as a startup. It's barely talking about governance even at this point, which is where my point of intersection with rainfall is. but it is it was started by a fellow um, who is Indian by background, uh, Amit Pradham, a very creative, uh, very engaging fellow. And he just, and he, and he comes at rainfall from the point of view, it's not correct that companies, have, Starbucks on down the line, uh, social media star, uh, companies have access to our data and we don't get anything in return for it. Its business proposition is to pay people in exchange for sharing their data via the rainfall system, if you will. And um, it's a, 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 they want to do, this is a very interesting thing for me being so uh, focused on corporate governance, is they want a decentralized corporate governance. And if you think about the difficulties, the obstacles of having decentralized corporate governance You know, where do you place fiduciary responsibility? How do decisions get made? Well, yes, you can make decisions, you know, across the uh, membership. But then how do you do the really critical decisions? The complications of decentralized governance are really uh, front and center with rainfall. Um, But that is a very interesting sideline. There's another uh, company that I'm an advisor to. I'm on the board of, and it's uh, located, headquartered in Seoul, Korea. And it was started by a group of young technology entrepreneurs who were catalyzed, really, by the former prime minister of South Korea, Han Sung-soo. And Dr. Han and I are colleagues on the International Finance Forum, which is an independent organization headquartered in Guangzhou and Beijing. And they meet once a year to talk in an annual meeting, which is what I participate in to talk about international issues. But Dr. Han is in his late 80s and climbs, you know, walks and hikes daily. Terrific shape, and he is now very engaged in these. Uh, these new technologies blockchain technology and and crypto and this company which is a digitized system that allows you as a tourist to rate the tourist sites that you're visiting digitally please don't ask me what the um, technology is (laughs) i haven't looked at it for a little while but there's a way of you it puts everything on the blockchain and uh, and they're doing much more I'm afraid I'm not doing service to it um, at any rate uh, so i have those two to uh, my foot is in the the, the the new technologies in that respect the other place where I'm focused I'm I'm involved is um, the Bretton Woods committee and the Bretton Woods Committee in fact that was the zoom I was just on before you called Barry the Bretton Woods Committee is looking at cryptocurrencies through the lens of not to stifle innovation, but to promote innovation, but yet actually get regulators to start moving to begin to give some structure to this um, marketplace that's opening up that could result in real problems if it's not addressed with with appropriate regulation. Um, So I'm on a working group around cryptocurrency, and again, there my focus will be on on governance. Um, I'm also involved in a group that's yet to begin really working uh, together on climate finance as part of the Bretton Woods um, organization. They have an interesting model. They tap people like myself to be part of a working group, convene us all via webinar, and then we feed into the production of these briefings and then do some writing on the briefings ourselves. But it's a very interesting way uh, to to prove that it takes a village to make a a product, to do the writing in this case.
0: Well, it sounds like uh, to me, I think regulators always trail behind innovation. Mm -hmm. So it could be what you're describing is so fascinating to me because it's new technology solving the problems that were created by the old technologies. But, mm-hmm. you know, on climate change, uh, today is Earth Day. And um, I read a, uh, this morning in a very intriguing um, proposal from the Cato Institute saying that the Biden administration should work with the WTO to remove all the barriers to any what they call green goods. And I'm not quite clear what green goods are. So in other words, this would promote sustainability and fight climate change and all tariffs throughout the world would be lifted on these. It seems like a good idea to me um, too, but (laughs) I thought you would be interested in that.
1: Uh, Indeed I am. You know, um, I've been paying some attention to the agenda that's being put together for the upcoming meeting of the Quad that's going to happen in Tokyo in May. The uh, transport, the supply chain of green goods is one of the items on their agenda. And it's really where, if you think about it, Uh, solving climate change is a public-private sector problem, right? It takes both sectors, not one or the other. But where the private sector can really weigh in and have the greatest impact, perhaps between the two uh, players, is on the deployment of money to uh, invest and to set up companies that pay attention to their emissions, reduce emissions, pay attention to renewables, reduce their dependency on coal, and then other ways to look at their imprint, their carbon imprint. But where, where policymakers and where leaders can weigh in is leveraging their clout through their voice. And that's one thing. That's what I see. That's the context in which I see this item on the Quad Agenda, and it's the same context I would see what you're talking about with the WTO. I mean, you have to sit back and say, why not? I mean, why shouldn't they put the emphasis on w on green goods? Uh, it doesn't mean they're going to um, come down against or in favor of tariffs on goods that are not green. <laughs> I mean, they're they're not going to take, in other words, they're not going to take punitive action against uh, brown or or black, <laughs> so ungreen goods. But I think it's all good, and I think it really does take an all it's going to take an all out effort to address the urgency that's been impressed on us.
0: What's amazing to me is this new role that Japan has taken, too. Um, In uh, my last podcast with Michael Green, we talked about that and how Japan has been heretofore kind of a follower, but now in some of these issues in terms of environmental concerns and so forth and defense in the region as well. Japan is becoming a, a leader, actually. It's a, it's a big change.
1: I look forward to listening to your podcast with Michael. Um, he's very good. And I also look forward to reading his book about, about Mr. Abe. Um, yeah, I think, I think I agree that Japan has been um, been in the vanguard of leaders. I don't know that it is a leader but it's been in the vanguard of other leaders. So it's it's a leader, but not the leader, is what I'm trying to say. And, and I've looked particularly at financial services and um, the role of corporate governance in uh, the uh, regulation of companies in Japan. And yes, it's true that Japan very early on embraced, um, through METI primarily, uh, embraced the... Um, Use by corporations of the TCFD framework, the Task Force on Climate Finance uh, Disclosure, Sustainability Disclosure. And this TCFD, as it's known, uh, was uh, promulgated by the Financial Standards Board, and uh, that was headed by Mark Carney, and is really the standard framework that is embraced across all the initiatives, now major initiatives underway in regions. Uh, including the U.S. and the SEC, to come forward with some sort of regulation on disclosure of uh, sustainability, particularly climate risk issues. And um, Japan, very early on, through METI, insisted that its corporations use TCFD, uh, the TCFD framework, for its disclosure, its voluntary disclosure. And now it's been incorporated in the Corporate Governance Code, and it's required of companies that are listed to make this disclosure. But because it's under the Corporate Governance Code, if I understand correctly, it is in the context of comply or explain. And that means if you are complying, fine. If you're not, just explain. So it's not the same degree of enforcement that we would find with the SEC rule, say the SEC rule gets enforced and um, gets on the books and gets enforced. There you've got the potential for punitive action if there's not not compliance. That's why I say Japan is, has been a leader in terms of getting out the message that they want its companies to be compliant with um, greener uh, operations, but they haven't gone so far as to make it a requirement. It's still in that comply and explain. Uh, category And um, that's where Japan uh, Inc. is comfortable, quite frankly. And so uh, we'll see what happens. But there is a, a strong movement within the, FSA, the Japan FSA to look at the rules that are coming out of the IFRS, the international rules that are being set, the baseline disclosure rules being set by the International Sustainability Standards Board, under the IFRS Foundation, there's a strong inclination to embrace those rules for Japan corporations because of their compatibility with domestic issues, their compatibility as a baseline for global for, for disclosure at a, on a global basis. And you can put on top of that your own domestic issue, your domestic requirements. So you've got kind of a hybrid Uh, So that's the discussion within the Japan FSA, and that's a very important discussion in terms of um, the uh, effort that's happening under the IFRS, because Japan, being a very big economy, coming over to that to embrace those uh, global standards is a very important step. Uh, in terms of getting nations, jurisdictions, regulatory jurisdictions, to embrace the global baseline standard. The ideal outcome would be if all jurisdictions, including the U.S., would embrace these global baseline standards that are being promulgated by the ISSB. That would be ideal, because then you've got everybody on the same page. And the way the ISSB standards are being structured, again, is to allow compatibility with jurisdictions in including Europe, where the framework, the prominent framework is different than the prominent framework in the SEC or the prominent framework in Japan. Right. Um, there's differences. So the 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 international baseline rules provides for that compatibility. That would be ideal, but it's going to take a long time for that to happen and and uh, the SEC is not likely. To, to go that direction anyway, and his, you know Gary Gensler has in effect said that much, but um, it doesn't mean they can't find places where there is compatibility. For instance, if there's a Japanese company that's going to list in a in a in a, on a U.S. exchange, can it make its disclosure on sustainability using the rules of the ISSB rather than the rules of the SEC? So that there is there are places for compatibility and. So there is, um, it's, there is hope. It's going to take a long time to, to get there. But that's a long-winded comment on your comment about Japan being a leader. Um, and, I, and I don't mean to take away from them because they were very early on in raising the banner for TCFD.
0: Yeah, you mentioned Japan, Inc. Uh, most people mm-hmm. don't realize that the Bank of Japan is the primary shareholder for most Japanese companies.
1: Um, so mm-hmm. it's, the
0: structure there is quite different. And so when we're talking about transparency and disclosure, which is a, a, a common theme through everything mm-hmm. that you're doing, I think Marcia mm-hmm. as well, you have this really strange ownership structure and yet, um, uh, and Japan of course was an innovator on the monetary policy front as well. They created mm-hmm. the first quantitative easing, the theory behind it and so forth. What's really fascinating to me now is that they have no inflation. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And how did they, have still been unable, maybe because of this funny structure that they have um, in terms of wages, for example, are not Mm -hmm. rising in Japan because of Japan Inc. They have been able to control that. They still haven't reached 2% at a time when we're what? A plus eight. So it's, it's, yeah, it takes many different kinds of structures to, to get through this. You know, I, I wanted to talk to you about India, too. Um, as, I, as I mentioned, you served on the board of Tata Capital and, and have visited India quite often. How do you see, going to a little bit to geopolitics, how do you see India's position in terms of the Quad? It's, they have a kind of tricky uh, position right now between Russia and the Quad, how do you look at that? How do you think that will affect India?
1: Mm. Uh, Well, there's a question of how it will affect India, but also how it will affect the Quad and the Quad's effectiveness. I think there's two directions that question can go. And, and, uh, yeah, I was very fortunate to to have the opportunity to sit on the board of Tata Capital Singapore. And um, it was very interesting, very eye-opening. Tata Group is uh, one of the... um, most highly regarded companies, conglomerates in India, going way, way back to the time of the British um, colonial period. Um, And then now I sit on the board of Quantum Advisors, which is the holding company of a mutual fund. And um, they also run managed portfolios of institutional investors who are foreign investors into the India equity markets. And then I'll go on the board of a private equity fund Which is focused on growth companies in India, and that'll be later this year. To your question about uh, India, it's uh, my focus on India began really with my uh, days at PPI when I was at PPI, and of course, uh, my years, my tenure there was 2005 to 2014, and those were really the go-go years for institutional investment private equity investment into China in particular. China was really beginning to open up, I date it from 1998 with the banking reforms that Zhu Rongji was so responsible for. Um, But PPI, which started as an organization in the mid 90s, traced that, paralleled that opening of China. And then during my tenure, we also experienced Chinese money coming out and beginning to flow globally. Um, it was a very important time, very heady time for the Institute, and we built the Asia-Pacific footprint of the organization, which still um, is very much in place today, and its basis for trying to look a little bit more globally than they have in the past, but still primarily Asia, Asia-Pacific. India came into focus, um, I would say, in the 2000s, um, and we had our first India member, which was Quantum Advisors founder whose board I now sit on, and then later Tata Capital came in. Now there's more, um, much more as, as befits the role of India in the global economy. So I started paying attention really to India dynamics, geopolitical dynamics and economic dynamics through the lens of this organization that did programming and was educational resource for these large institutional investors and also my own interest, I got, I was affiliated uh, loosely with UC San Diego's School for Global Policy and Strategy. And they are now setting up an India Center. I'm on that working group uh, to do the planning oh, for that working that. center. didn't know that. That's great. Um, yeah. Yeah, they're in the process of hiring a director. And I think it's going to be a much, it's, it's, it is a much needed and a valuable asset on the West Coast the focus of uh, u.s india relations it'll be modeled much on the china center at uc san diego that susan shirk has uh, right. so ably led um uh, so i got looking at it through those lenses uh ppi and then my own interest in geopolitics and uh, geopolitical economy um and it's always india has always um eluded me uh, of, eluded a facile characterization. In other words, it's a very complex country, difficult to govern. New Delhi is very important. The national government is very important to the broad trends, but the uh, governance of the country is really dictated down to the village level. Um, There's The way things get run, village to village, state to state, and then federal government, national government to the states, is is a very interesting um, study, and (laughs) it does take some study. Um, So, you know, on the question of India's role in the Quad and India's latest demonstration of its um, embrace of Moscow, its refusal to condemn Moscow for its aggression in Ukraine In the United Nations, there has been a series of votes in the United Nations, all of which India has abstained from. I might say it was uh, New Delhi was quick to follow up with statements saying we still embrace the sanctity of uh, borders of sovereign countries. This is not to say we are uh, backing off at all from that. It's just that we don't condemn Moscow, and it's a complex. Rationale, I think that has historical underpinnings, uh, a legacy that probably goes back to the time of of colonial uh, times in India and the very brutal independence struggle that India had to throw off the British. And then that was followed by the strife over the split between into split of India into two countries into pakistan and and India. And then that was followed by the years of Nehru and a non-alignment of Indian politics, with, uh, particularly with Western impulses. So it, it's a complex legacy, very much in keeping with the complexity of the country and why it's very difficult to sum up what India is or India isn't in a few words. Um, so you have this history that's that has included uh, from the time of Nehru forward, um, and a, 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 a certain affinities with Moscow, um, the USSR, then the USSR, and affinities with Moscow and the leadership, uh, they befriended India and have continued to supply India's armaments. Uh, if you look at India's um, artillery, and weaponry. It's in large part Russian origin. Uh, origin, And um, while some of it is very old, they have to continue to buy parts. So the relationship continues, in other words. It's a, a relationship that would be difficult for them to um, to draw the curtain on very quickly. And then, um, and since Pakistan and China are close, exactly,
0: it's very complicated,
1: yeah, exactly. And then you uh, mentioned the current questions around Moscow. It's very complicated for the Indians because they look at this alliance between Xi Jinping and Putin. and on the one hand, they've got this uh, sort of cheek by jowl uh, relationship, and it's the um while Putin is someone who they're not going to condemn, Xi Jinping, on the other hand, rep- is the leader of a country that poses a real threat to India on its northern borders. So, uh, And then China is also a big friend of Pakistan. And it's it's in this case, the friend of my enemy is not my friend, it's my enemy. So um, uh, I think it's, so you have complications that have to do with legacy and history and then contemporary politics and then practical uh reasons the purchase of their arms from russia um, and uh and then also uh some disagreements with the west i mean and disagreements with the biden administration although and this is where it gets to be a complicated uh, a balancing act for for india and for new delhi is they've come closer as we all know to the west and to the united states and that's a very welcome in my opinion very welcome emerging partnership and i think it is stronger than what we sometimes give it credit for being just because that's the direction i think that's the direction of play for new delhi uh, more so than um, the the xi jinping putin alliance um and so that plays out in the quad and um when they meet in may um the issues will be on the table, there'll be practical issues, once again, having to do with COVID, having to do with supply chains, having to do with uh, cybersecurity, practical things that governments can do together that are not necessarily threatening in the region. Now, China has been quick to characterize the Quad as anti-China, and frankly, it is intended to push forward to advance the role of the U.S. in Asia, but also the role of rule-based democracies and and as uh, uh, in the in the in throughout the Asia Pacific. At any rate, um, these I wish they are were on-
0: listening to you, Marsh. I wish you were going <laughs> and advising the State Department. You know, I was really surprised when I saw that I believe it was Secretary Blinken um, hmm. went into a meeting. Um, and he criticizing India for its human rights record. At Mm. the same time, he was asking them to help with Russia. So the complexity that you're describing, I'm not, I think the State Department needs your vantage point.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I have to say I I agree, not necessarily my vantage point, but, um, uh, you know, I don't know Tony Blinken. I, I wish I did. I do like him as Secretary of State, but there's been a similar um, situation, uh, and I happen to be a supporter of the Biden administration. But, been a similar situation in Saudi Arabia, and um, where the the diplomacy seems to escape. Uh, the presentation <laughs> and with well, the Jake I Sullivan
0: mean, and yeah, all that yeah, kind of yeah. the shouting match. Yeah, yeah. I think you have yeah. to think what matters today mm-hmm. and what Although, matters tomorrow,
1: right. <laughs> right? Although I think you know the the administration is a political administration, and I think the there is a wing of the party that really objects, and I understand the objection to the treatment uh, at the hands of the Modi government and and the and the head of the government is a distinctly so national Hindu, a Hindu nationalist. So, and his treatment of Muslims has not been um, good.
0: I just wonder how many wars, you know, we can fight at the same time and, you know, how we prioritize things so that we attain more of the goals that that we need to in a practical way. Which is
1: the definition of diplomacy. <laughs>
0: That's right. Well, you know, COVID has changed so much. And this war that we're just talking about has, has changed so much. I had a conversation last week with uh, a mutual friend of ours, Robert Madsen, about energy. And one of the things uh, that he said is that this turnaround, and this goes back to your issues of sustainability and environmental protection and Um, that he felt that Germany, although they said that they are going to uh, uh, turn the lights back on in their nuclear Mm. facilities and so forth, he feels that as soon as the war is over, that they're going to forget about that. And they really haven't asked the German people if they're in favor of nuclear power again. There was a reason that they unplugged those facilities. Do you think that some of the things that have been happening will rapidly... We're in the middle of it now, so maybe it's hard to see. What do you mm-hmm. th- think are some of the lasting implications from the war in Ukraine?
1: Well, Japan has the same uh, question mark about nuclear power as Germany does. And uh, my guess is the Japanese would be closer to turning the uh, the plants back on than the Germans would be. It just depends on how... Um, uh, how serious it gets, how difficult it gets, particularly for the Germans. And the Germans, it's either the oil or the natural gas. I think they still continue to get one of the two from uh, Russian supplies, if I'm not mistaken. There's still right. some, some cushion there. And then it, it depends, too, on the extent that the uh, Biden folks in Washington are able to come up with um, – solutions for the uh, constraints on the supplies into Europe to offset what's being lost as a result of the result of the sh- sanctions going in uh, with the war I don't think the war is going to be over anytime soon I think it's really in for the long haul um, and uh, so anyway I think I think what remains to be seen whether they uh, turn the nuclear power plants back on or not. I don't think they'll do so willingly. In other words, I don't think it'll be a proactive decision. It'll be if their backs get pushed further to the wall. Um, But I think the, um, um, sort of from a broader perspective, Lyric, I think the uh, shadow of that war is lengthening over the global economy. And um, it's going to continue to further constrain supply chains. And that's going to affect supplies, and that's going to affect affect inflation, and that's going to be, make it very tough for local governments, national governments, local governments, to um, to hold their own. I mean, uh, Macron has now moved way out in front of Marie Le Pen, but going into that first debate or that that debate last week, you know, she was considered a credible. Challenger, she still is a credible challenger, but a challenger who could conceivably upset Macron. I would say I think that would be disastrous, not only for France but also for Europe and also for the whole Western alliance. Oh, she she says she wants
0: to leave NATO.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. France—that's I mean, right. for starters. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, so I think that's where the implications of the war are the most serious. um, and how that trickles down to your life and my life, Um, I think where it's gonna be inescapable. I mean, uh, it's gonna be be very, very difficult. Um, You know, talking again about the Quad, the Australians have an election May 21st, just three days before the supposed uh, onset of the Quad meeting in Tokyo. And that could be a change in government there. Scott Morrison could lose his seat. Uh, we're looking at midterms in this country and, uh, you know, the um, Republicans are marching right ahead and the uh, Democrats are struggling to, you know, keep their place are, are going to be struggling to keep their place in line. Um, so, uh, you know, the shadow over the global economy is going to affect our local politics, too. It's just there's just too many uh, pocketbook issues that come to the fore as a result. So. Uh, I think there i I don't know um uh, you know I heard um a fellow uh journalist talk about this yesterday, and I think it's very interesting the another implication of the war in this country has been to actually unify um, not a hundred percent not in lockstep but unify a very um fragmented fractious polity in this country, and uh I think the war has come into our living rooms into our kitchens. We really have very um, immediate responses to what we've seen. Gosh, what we've seen is certainly not what they've experienced over there. but you know, people have opened their pocketbooks. Um, I had a friend who was in Ukraine as a Fulbright and had to leave, and she was staying with us for a few days um, after she came back from Ukraine and Warsaw. And she remarked, uh, this was. Uh, in early March, she remarked that something like eight million dollars had been raised through the charities that she was involved in on behalf of the Ukrainians. So it's very much uh, with us. And I think it has brought some sense of um, togetherness, whether we're red states, blue states, uh, whatever side of the aisle you're on in Washington. I think it's true in Washington, too. So there's that little bit. Will it fade once um, the war fades, war f- fading couldn't happen soon enough, but uh, who knows? Will the alliance fade when the war fades? Who knows? Um, uh, you know, the uh, positive outcome on that score, once again, on that broader basis, is that the Western alliance has acted as an alliance again and has added Japan, added Australia, and I think that's, that's really important. Um, geopolitically for this country and this country as a global leader. So multiple levels.
0: Multiple levels. The thing that concerns me is this bifurcation that we're seeing of the global north and the global south. And, you know, India Uh, is part of that picture as well. And Russia and China are definitely becoming closer together as a result of all this. And emerging markets, as we raise interest rates, we are going to see more defaults, I'm sure, in emerging market countries because their dollar-denominated debt, their, their um, borrowings went up. It's $100 trillion in emerging markets right now um, in terms of uh, uh, their debts. They're not going to be able to pay them. And maybe more importantly, they might not have the foreign exchange they need to buy food, for example, in places like Egypt. So I'm worried about that that bifurcation, and which leads me to my last question for you, is about global institutions Um, because you're a governance person and the WTO seems to have been weakened quite a bit. The WHO certainly uh, didn't do what what we thought it maybe unfairly thought that it could do because there's no enforcement. But um, the IMF seems to be functioning. Uh, very well. There's no global institution, as far as I know, that that creates taxation rules. What What is the future of global institutions? Like the United Nations is another hmm. example of that.
1: Another example, right? Um, just on the subject of emerging markets and their debt and what that's going to mean. Uh, that's something that the IMF head uh, was talking about just two days ago they're having their right. annual imf world bank meeting. i've been going to them. the
0: meetings yeah
1: yeah yeah i have probably you? been yeah. in the virtual audiences yeah. together <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah i've connected through the Bretton woods uh coverage of it coverage of it all um the future of global institutions i think they're they're necessary but they're always and they're always going to be under strain i mean they're uh, some are better than others, and um, the WTO has taken wax, um, not uh, just because the Chinese have taken advantage, but also because you had an administration preceding uh, the Biden administration after Obama, the Trump administration, that really uh, gave institutions like the WTO no quarter. I mean, uh, they all could be. Uh, dismantled and um, uh, packed into history books uh, and the Trump administration would have been, been very happy. And that includes the institutions that run our federal government. Um, so I think uh, they, uh, two key institutions, IMF and World Bank seem to be doing fine. Um, the Chinese are seem to be participating you know, they have their seat at the table where they want it, uh, I believe. Perhaps not. It could be wrong about that, but it seems so. And, and the reason I say this is because they're participating. They're not going off and forming uh, an IMF. Shanghai. Out, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, Shanghai. So, right. um, so I think that's good. So I think those two institutions are strong and they're very important institutions for the International financial system and for having a rules-based financial system. So, United Nations is um, uh, necessary, but not always effective. I mean, it um, many places where it's just just not going to be effective. And 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 um, uh, but as a convener for a global conversation where you get the small countries and the large countries. Uh, the north and the south—that you, those issues that you're talking about, lyric—you get those mm-hmm. all off the table, and you, people can can have their have their say. Uh, it's necessary. It's it's just necessary. Uh, the world would be a, would be worse off because of it. Um, mm. But it, uh, but the effectiveness has been challenged, and and should be challenged when it when they're not being effective. I mean, part of that is. Um, Media driven. Um, part of it is uh, the way our world uh, solves its problems or doesn't solve its problems these days. Uh, so, um, you know, I hope. I, one uh, one anecdote is the um, comments that younger people are increasingly not inclined to go into government, for instance. Uh, that they're more inclined to go other directions than public service. Um, I don't know if that's the case or not. I know a lot of young people who really are very committed, very passionate about making a difference, you know, in their communities and and are willing to do that through government. So so who knows, Lyric, um, your guess is as good as mine. And, you know, the person on the street's guess is as good as mine. I, I hope uh, that their leadership, has integrity and I hope that uh, they can continue to 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 do because we can't exist as a society without institutions and um, if they need to be reformed if they need to be restructured then let's do it if they need to be replaced then let's do it but you look at NATO for instance that had no nothing to do for years and now you know and had we dismantled it where would we be I mean, so, uh, it's up to leadership to really, um, define the purpose when the, uh, exigencies for that institution change. I think it's mm-hmm. very important. Uh, comes back to leadership again, doesn't it? How I was just going to say, yeah.
0: and, and you have definitely been a thought leader for all of your career. And <laughs> well, I'm you. sure people will want to follow you, um, can they find you on Twitter and where else can they find what you do? Because I think you've, you'll you generate a lot of interest with some of the things that you've said.
1: Oh, Thank wonderful. You. Thank you for that. Thank you for that uh, request. So you can find me on Twitter at Marsha, M-A-R-S-H-A-J-V-B, Marsha, at Marsha J-V-B. I'm on LinkedIn as well. I'm about to join Substack. I haven't done it as of yet. But I intend to, thanks to Lyric's uh, good <laughs> encouragement. And uh, you can also find me on EconView. I contribute to Lyric's digital. I'm one of her one of her experts on her digital platform, and delighted to be contributing there, which I've done for a number of years. Um, and you can also email me, and I will be very happy to send you um, pieces that I've written. I've just completed my second brief. Um under MJ uh, Global Insights, and it's um, on the issue of sustainability rules, and uh, it's also an extension of what I'm doing as an expert in sustainability and corporate governance, and that is to not only serve on corporate boards, but it is also to work with funds and organizations as they create their narratives for their stakeholders on what they're doing in sustainability. And then I work with a technology company locally in digitizing that strategy, that story, so that it can be updated and so that it also can be updated from time to time and can serve as a relationship building uh, tool. And then then I'm working with a um, partner, a second partner, who is a corporate governance sustainability expert like myself. And we are available as mentors, corporate directors on late stage companies who are uh, candidates for exit, IPO, or merger acquisition. So, um, I do a lot of writing, uh, briefs, uh, journalism, op-ed, and uh, longer pieces. I also have a couple of books in me, but that's for I think another, so. podcast. I was <laughs> another podcast. I'm just going to say another podcast, and
0: Larry. then. Once you have that book out, we will definitely have you for a return podcast. Oh, and lovely. actually, I'm adding a book review section to the EconU oh, website. Good. Oh, very and good. It's a, it's a sneaky way for me to get a lot of books from all my friends <laughs> and have a chance <laughs> right. to read through them. But uh, right. I, I, yeah, there there's just so much to discuss right now. Thank you for sharing you know, your time on this Friday afternoon of a, the long week of IMF and World Bank meetings. and. Bretton Woods as well. It's it's just so helpful and illuminating. So well, thank, thank you, thank you,
1: thank you. Your pleasure to speak with you. Really.
0: Oh, same here. And I want to thank also all the people behind the scenes who make EconView possible. Uh, Managing editor Ying Zan and our producer Sam Fu. Please visit our website to sign up for alerts about our next podcast.